Hello and welcome to the May edition of the primary survey from the EMJ, the Emergency Medicine Journal based here in the UK but an international journal publishing on all aspects of emergency medicine, critical care and pre-hospital care. This month it's an interesting time. We're right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and there's an awful lot going on. So we're going to pick out the papers which we think are particularly pertinent to the world as it exists at the moment. But of course, there's always more in the EMJ. There's lots of best bets. There's other articles which we don't have time to talk about today and always lots and lots of education. Now, I'm particularly delighted today to be joined by Rick Body, who wrote the primary survey for me. So, Rick. Hi, Simon. It's a pleasure to be joining you on the EMJ podcast this month. And you're now your deputy editor now, aren't you? I am indeed, yes. Any special responsibilities? No, it's very much the same as when I was an associate editor, but with a different title, I think. (laughs) Well, it's always good to get a new title. So congratulations on that. I know you've been doing it for a long period of time. But we should dive straight in, shouldn't we? Should we get going with the primary survey? Because it actually kicks off with some really topical stuff. And I think this is this is quite remarkable that we're now getting papers submitted and published in record time to try and keep up with COVID-19 because your, your first paper is in fact about COVID-19. Yeah, and very pertinent too, because the world has changed really over the last couple of months in emergency medicine. And all we seem to be able to think about is, of course, COVID because it dominates our home lives and our work lives. So very pertinent that we've got this first paper on managing COVID-19 and it's a really nice one because it's from Singapore. So Tan and colleagues tell us about how they prepared for a pandemic response and how they delivered on it in Singapore. Very relevant to us because they're of course ahead of the curve. They developed the pandemic much earlier than we did so we can learn a lot from what they did. And they tell us some really interesting things about how they took a risk-based approach to PPE very pertinent issue in the UK. Um, It's had a lot of coverage in the media, causes a lot of anxiety among our colleagues, myself included. Uh, And here, Tan and the colleagues describe how they take a risk-based approach to PPE, because we can't all be wearing maximum PPE, boiler suits, hoods, and so on, all of the time to look after these patients. We have to have a risk-based approach. And here they describe a very pragmatic way of dividing patients into three different risk groups and different levels of PPE for each risk group. So that's not dissimilar to what we've done here to a large extent, but the debate has been around where do you, which sort of things appear in which sort of um, risk categorization, I suppose, and sort of determining what you wear for what procedure does vary around the world. Where did you get the feel that the, the Singaporeans were 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 they sort of particularly cautious or were they just pretty much where we are? Well, I think what was nice to see is that they're taking a quite a pragmatic approach to issuing guidance for what PPE you should wear based on the environment that you're working in, not necessarily the procedure that you're doing at the time. So the, the first iteration of the guidance that we had focused very heavily on the procedure that you're undertaking. So if you're undertaking an aerosol generating procedure, then you wear full PPE with an FFP3 mask and so on. Whereas if you're not, then you you just wear a surgical mask, some gloves and an apron when you're treating the patient. But for us in the emergency department, I think that felt a little wrong because there are really high risk environments like COVID resource, for example, where you've got patients who may be vomiting, they may have cardiac arrests, they may have seizures, and that happens unpredictably. You don't get any warning, so there's no time to put PPE on. You've got to be prepared for those things to happen that may be aerosol generating 
and therefore have your PPE on at baseline. And that's what they describe in this paper from Singapore. They had high-risk environments where the staff wear full PPE all of the time. I think our guidance has evolved to understand that uh, we need to take a risk-based approach to the environments people are working in. But I think it's really nice to see that described from Singapore because they've been there ahead of us. And that's exactly what they did. That's what they felt was right. And it's now what I feel is right for us too in the UK. I think the other thing I liked in this paper was the fact that they talk about risk management. Um, I, th- I seem to meet quite a lot of people who think of the risk of infecting with COVID-19 and nosocomial infection is either you get yes or no. It's very much a black and white thing. This is safe and this isn't safe. Whereas the reality is that everything is a is a risk spectrum, really. And at some point, wearing lots of additional kit is both wasteful and also can actually bring in um, additional harms. Certainly when we used to train for CBRN, uh, chemical, biological, radiological, radiological and nuclear events, and we were wearing much higher levels of PPE, it was quite noticeable that you contaminated yourself when you were taking the stuff off. So the more stuff you've got on, the more complex it is to take off, the more chances you actually have to potentially get contaminated there. So it's a really risky, really difficult area. It's not black and white at all. It's lots of of, of gradations of risk, both in the PPE and in the exposure. So I, I think their approach is, is quite sensible, sensible and pragmatic. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's not just about risks to the clinicians as well. Some really important points that you made about donning and doffing PPE, particularly doffing, uh, but also there's risks to the patients. So if we think that a patient may have COVID and we put them in an area with lots of patients who do have COVID, then there's a chance that they're going to get infected if they didn't actually have COVID in the first place. We've actually caused some harm. By taking this sort of risk-based approach, then we're reducing the potential harm to the patients. We're putting low-risk patients together, intermediate-risk patients together, high-risk patients together. And therefore, I think we can't absolutely eliminate the risk of cross-contamination between patients, but this at least minimises that potential. Okay, I'm going to move us on to a way that, well, is it away from COVID-19? It kind of is and it isn't, because perchance this um, edition of the journal has quite a bit around end of life care. And of course, one of the things that we are sadly seeing is a fairly significant number of patients come in with very, very severe disease. And the mortality rate from this disease, particularly amongst hospitalized patients, is really quite high. So palliation, um, end of life care, that, that's a real thats a real issue for us now. It always has been, but it, I think it feels really focused at the moment. I think you're absolutely right. There has been no time like this in um, certainly my career, where we've had to focus so much on providing end-of-life care because we're making these decisions so rapidly for patients with COVID-19 in the emergency department. So although these this series of articles that we published in May was not designed to address the COVID-19 pandemic. Actually, it's, it couldn't be more relevant. So we've got a series of articles that cover this issue. Um, we've got uh, Mugal and colleagues who present a systematic review looking at qualitative studies that have evaluated the barriers that we might experience in providing end-of-life care in the emergency department. So looking at issues like training, have the staff got enough training to provide appropriate end-of-life care? Are the guidelines in place that actually help us to decide how to appropriately provide end-of-life care in our departments? What are the environments like? Where do we provide end-of-life care to our patients? And are we making their experience um, appropriately pleasant, if you like, appropriately dignified? 
Then we've got a really nice article from Wright and colleagues who've looked at the impact of a training course. So one of the barriers identified in that systematic review was the lack of training provided to people working in emergency departments. And Wright and colleagues go on to describe a training course provided to emergency physicians with specific focus on end-of-life care that's been designed by experts in palliative care. So the question is, could that help us to address one of those barriers? And then finally, we've got a really nice expert practice review article from Mary Darwood, who's, of course, one of our associate editors. And end-of-life care is a specialist interest of Mary's, as you may have heard at some of the big conferences. So Mary's article covers a whole host of really pertinent issues. And at this time in particular, when we're providing so much end-of-life care during the pandemic, I think it's really important for us to all digest the pearls of wisdom that Mary shares with us in this article. How do we communicate most effectively with patients and their relatives? How do we decide whether to issue a do not attempt resuscitation order and how do we communicate that? How do we establish other goals of care, like whether we're going to escalate to critical care and so on? Um, and how do we address issues like organ donation, perhaps less relevant in the COVID-19 pandemic, but of course still relevant for our more general practice? So a load of really pertinent issues that everyone working in emergency medicine should be aware of. So a must read, I would say. I would agree. And I think it's only a few years back when we were at conferences, when people really started to talk about palliative care is probably only in the last five or six years as, a, as an emergency medicine core skill but of course it, it always has been but at least now people are looking at it from a more scientific and academic perspective and getting some good training programs out there so yeah absolutely core core business of ours then there's more in the journalists month around early warning scores that's, that's an area where we've published quite a lot of papers on it's quite a fruitful area for academic research but it's also to some extent it's always that pursuit of how little can you do in terms of an assessment which will predict something which is really important you know like critical care admission or death or admission to hospital it's quite a complex area Yes, it is. And again, it's very relevant to the pandemic response, I would say. Um, uh, this is not a national guideline, but our local guideline focuses very heavily on the early warning score. So if a patient has a low early warning score, then uh, we may consider immediate discharge from the emergency department in the context of them having suspected COVID-19. So early warning scores are very relevant in this pandemic response. And again, we've got three papers that focus on evaluating the uh, early warning scores for use in this clinical setting. So you may have heard of the PAT-POP score, which has got accumulating evidence for its uh, accuracy and value in the paediatric population. And in this issue, we've got a really nice evaluation of inter-observer reliability of PAT-POPs. So you might think, well, why do we need to evaluate inter-observer reliability of an early warning score? Surely it's all about physiological parameters and they're kind of objective. But actually, one of the things about PAT-POPs is it does include at least one subjective element, and that's your gut feeling. And so evaluating inter-observer reliability is really important. And then there's also the potential subjectivity around assessing whether the patient has added breathing sounds like grunting or wheezing, for example. And that's also part of PAT-POPs. So it's very important that we do evaluate inter-observer reliability of that. 
it's a really interesting academic exercise to see how they've gone about it and which measures they use. They've, for example, studied the intraclass correlation coefficient or ICC. So if you're interested in how we measure inter-observer reliability, this is one that you really should look at. And from a practical point of view, as practicing emergency physicians, it's satisfying to see that the inter-observer reliability of PACPOPs was actually pretty good. I agree. I think it's a really interesting area. We've done a lot on, on these sort of scores and triage over the years, and still there is work to be done. And then finally, Rick, Hughes brought up, and I think it's, again, it's, it's another very relevant uh, article for this this time, is about emergency medicine training in Africa. Because I don't know about you, but I'd rather, to, to a logic and I've been very focused on really what's happening within our own hospital and trying to get, you know, my mind and my focus has actually come inwards to some extent. But we have to realize that in a global pandemic, it is global. And that our colleagues in low and middle income countries will have a different experience and a really quite potentially quite a challenging one. And they need emergency medicine just as much as everybody else does. Yes, absolutely. And I really like this article, which I, I handled as the uh, editor, actually, uh, because uh, Akomi, I hope that's how I pronounce the name, and colleagues report on the variation in training programs for emergency medicine across Africa. And I think they've done a really good job of aggregating the data on the different training programs that currently exist across Africa. So you have to read the article for the details, and I think you should, if you, especially if you're interested in global health. And the value of this, I think, is in benchmarking. This tells us where we're at right now in 2020, the start of this decade. We will be really nice to see how this progresses. I was actually quite heartened to see so many emergency medicine residency programs across Africa. I don't know if I was right to do that. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. But uh, what will be the most interesting thing is to see the progress. Are we going to improve over time? How is, how is emergency medicine going to establish itself as a specialty uh, as we go through this decade? So it would be really nice to see a repeat of this in uh, a few years' time, actually. Yes, and also to see the numbers of trainees who've gone through those programmes and stayed and worked in those uh, countries. So we'll bring that to an end now, uh, Rick, if that's okay. Uh, lots to talk about, lots to read in the journal, as I said at the beginning, that don't just read the primary survey stuff, go out and have a look at what else we've got in there. Um, final two sentences from you, Rick. So I think you should read this main EMJ because it's got so many pertinent things to our pandemic response and so much for many other different people as well who are looking at global health and so on. Really important that we stay up to date. Um, there's an explosion of literature relating to COVID-19, an explosion of information in the media. I think what's really important is we retain our focus on staying up to date with the emergency medicine literature as well at this time, because that's most relevant to our practice. And there's plenty of that for you to digest in the May issue. Excellent. And we'll see you all again next month. See you then.